The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen. This is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of December 23rd, 2019. On this week's show, The Ringer's Brian Curtis will join us to discuss the seeming demise of the Dallas Cowboys, whose owner Jerry Jones is sad and whose coach Jason Garrett is probably getting fired. Lindsey Gibbs of the Power Plays newsletter will also be here to talk about Kelly Leffler, the WNBA owner who's on the cusp of becoming a pro-Trump U.S. senator. And finally, we'll interview Jason Holt, who as a high schooler in Wyoming 25 years ago, played a key role, actually the key role, in one of the most significant basketball plays in the history of the game. Joining me is Stefan Fatsis, author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. I love how you did not say what that play is, Josh, to keep the listeners listening. Savvy, savvy podcasting. Thank you. And we should note to the listeners that as part of the holiday spirit, we recorded all three of these segments on three different days with potentially three different sound profiles just to keep you on your ear toes. So, Stefan, do you have any other messages for the listeners as we approach Christmas Day? Does that give anything away? I don't know. We'll see if people read the iTunes description or the show page. Stefan, always a pleasure. Shall we get into it? Let's do it. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. On Sunday in Philadelphia, the Eagles beat the Dallas Cowboys 17-9 to, I suppose, take control of the division. As our colleague Nick Green wrote on Sunday, anything can happen in the self-flushing toilet that is the NFC East, and the 7-8 and Cowboys could still make the playoffs if they beat crappy Washington next week and the 8-7 and Eagles lose to the crappy Giants. But at this moment, it seems like there is a finality to this Cowboys defeat with Jason Garrett likely out after nine-plus seasons as the Dallas head coach and zero conference title game appearances. Joining us now is the Ringer's Brian Curtis, whose credential for participating in this segment is a lifetime spent marinating in Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex Sports Radio. Hello, Brian. You know, fire Jason Garrett's season starts earlier every year, doesn't it? That's what I feel. Hi. Hi. Brian, there was a piece in Texas Monthly earlier this year by Dan Solomon in which he documented the history of Fire Jason Garrett. Ed Werder reported in December 2013 that Jason Garrett was about to be fired. (laughs) Yeah, it's been a really long time. He's just been in our lives a long time as Cowboy fans. I mean, he was the offensive coordinator in 2007. And one very funny feature of the Jason Garrett era was that Jerry Jones hired him before he hired the head coach, Wade Phillips, back then. So he hired supposed wonderkin Jason Garrett, who was a wonderkin in the sense only that he was young. And then he hired the head coach and said, this is your offensive coordinator. I mean, that, that's just a huge chunk of our lives at this point. <laughs> 13 years. And here we are. The Ringers, Danny Heifetz, your colleague, wrote on Sunday that this Eagles loss was the most disappointing Cowboys game and one of the most disappointing Cowboys seasons and perhaps the most disappointing decade of Cowboys football. Really uh, <laughs> puts a puts a fine point on things. But I think if you look at the long arc of Cowboys history, there is a kind of inevitability to this loss. But if you look at the particulars of this game, the Eagles go into it with basically everyone on their team injured. The Cowboys are favored going into the game. So for me, at least, it's not like I could say that I expected the Cowboys to lose this game. I thought the Cowboys are going to win for those very reasons. Eagles are not a good football team at all. And, you know, if you look at it, Cowboys had that little fake mini comeback last week against the Rams. So I I absolutely thought they were going to win this game. And it was one of those situations where I really felt every time the Cowboys did something really stupid, Let's say commit an illegal formation penalty on a punt. Let's say not have your top two wide receivers, at least in this game, 
Randall Cobb and Amari Cooper in the game with fourth down in the season on the line, it was really one of our last chances to ever tweet vintage Jason Garrett. I mean, we may never get a chance to tweet that again. Zeke Elliott carried the ball five times in the first half. That's not good. They dropped lots of passes. That wasn't good. They punted on fourth and one in the fourth quarter, albeit in their own territory, when they were trailing by, what, 11 points? This is not exactly the most sophisticated team when it came to play calling, and that does fall on Jason Garrett. And one of the other complaints about this game, Joe Banner, former Eagles executive, pointed out on Twitter that, you know, the one thing that the Cowboys needed to do was test the Eagles' defensive backs outside of the numbers, and they didn't start doing that until there were three minutes left in the game. This is a colossal failure. And when you start to read about the sort of the decade of lost promise under Jason Garrett, it's pretty staggering the kinds of talent, the amount of talent that he had to work with. If I give him credit for anything, it's that he probably has something to do with that talent getting there. Because if you remember the previous decade of Cowboys personnel, it was really bad. and It was really sort of crazy under Jerry Jones. And I think what Jason Garrett has done is he came in there and he was such a non-entity of a personality and so non-threatening to Jerry Jones that he was able to have some influence, I think, on that process, which is to his credit. The Cowboys just started doing normal things like draft offensive linemen in the first round instead of trying to draft Johnny Manziel. What the problem was, he couldn't coach those players. <laughs> he wasn't good at that. And so you have this strange thing now where, as you both said, they got lots of really good players on the field. They put together a really, really good football team that has the number one offense in the NFL. And yet they're seven and eight. The thing that's, I think, confusing to outsiders like me and Stefan is that Jerry Jones reputationally is a guy who is not patient, who is just obsessed with, uh, you know, with winning and spending money and spending money to win, as I think most NFL owners are, but he takes it up to another level because he's Jerry Jones. And then you have this coach who's been uh, leading a perpetually disappointing team that Jerry Jones just gives chance after chance after chance. And, you know, even after this game, Jerry is kind of, his comment is like more in sorrow than in anger. And just like, what is the deal with this relationship and how has Jerry Jones, how and why has he allowed it to go on for as long as it's gone on? Well, there is a certain soft spot for Jason Garrett because he was part of the glory years of Jerry. He's a, he's a, you know, he's a loyal guy, as I said. I think that there is a little bit of a misperception about Jerry. I think he thinks that about money. I think if the Cowboys had gone the equivalent of seven and nine financially the last couple of years, Jerry Jones would have been pulling his hair out and making as many moves as he could to fix to right the ship. I don't think football in his mind is that important, or at least he doesn't treat it with that urgency anymore. I just don't think that's the case. I sat with him in his office last year doing a, doing a piece for over an hour. He never brought up the football team, not even once. <laughs> <laughs> brought up all the buildings he was building, brought up the new practice facility, brought up all kinds of financial opportunities. But I just don't get the sense, does he want to win? Absolutely. But I don't get the sense that football is as urgent for him as other things in his life in terms of being an NFL owner right now. But the perception is that, that that's always been the case and continues to be the case. And, you know, if you take the long arc, Brian, the owners who are most invested tend to be the least successful, the ones that meddle the most, that pretend to be GMs. And those in the NFL right now are going to be Jones and his buddy Dan Snyder, of course. So when Jones walks out of the owner's suite with a minute to go in the game on Sunday and says afterward, I'm a little numb that we didn't come up here and beat them, you still get the feeling that he cares because he's Jerry Jones. I mean, if anything, he's ultimately responsible for keeping Jason Garrett is around as long as he has, despite not succeeding to the level of the talent and the level of Jones's expectations. And that can only be because of two things. One is that he's over-involved and doesn't give his employees the freedom to work the way they want to work. And B, he's over-involved. Well, yeah, but it's been that way for 25 years, right? Cowboys last won yeah. a Super Bowl in the mid-90s. So I think one is probably just hard to pry him out of that job. The other thing I think but you should, we should note about the Jason Garrett era is I'm, we're sitting here complaining and, and bitching and everything else. But, you know, the Cowboys have been good over the last decade. They haven't won anything important, but 
Cowboys were the number one seed in the NFC a couple years ago when Dak Prescott and Zeke Elliott were rookies. They had that year where, but for the Des Bryant disputed catch in Green Bay, they were on their way to the NFC Championship game, potentially. Um, then when Jason Garrett was off in quarter, they were also the number one seed in the NFC a year with Tony, Tony Romo and Terrell Owens. So I think if anything, the Cowboys sort of signature characteristic is they're inconsistent. They don't put together good game after good game. They don't put together good season after good season. So if you're Jerry, there's probably just enough gold dust to sort of look and go, well, maybe this is the right staff. Maybe this is the right crew. Only now it's proven that it's definitively not. Yeah, there have been these kind of alternating good and bad seasons over the last few. And if you compare the Cowboys to the Giants or the Eagles, I think the big difference in the Garrett era is that the Cowboys haven't been able to cash in on their great seasons. Only the Patriots are consistently Super Bowl contenders every year. And the thing that kind of makes you a great coach maybe, or makes you considered to be a great coach is if in the, on those occasions when your team isn't beset by injuries or when you have the right mix of talent and luck that you actually win games, win Super Bowls. Like the Giants have been probably worse than the Cowboys on aggregate, but they have those Super Bowls because on the only chances they ever had to even sniff it, they won it. That's a great point. And no time when the Cowboys have when their fortunes have lined up and they've gone to the playoffs, have I ever watched that game and said, the Cowboys have a coaching advantage today? <laughs> and it's not just when they're, you know, potentially playing a Belichickian figure. It's when they're playing, I don't know, uh, Sean McVay or Pete Carroll or, or whomever. You know, they just don't, they haven't, I think when you get to the playoffs, that probably game planning and coaching and all that stuff means as much or more than it does during the regular season. I've just never felt they had an advantage in those cases. I wonder also whether it doesn't have something to do with the Cowboys not evolving in some way. You have the same head coach slash offensive coordinator for you know a decade and a half, um, and you're perceived as not being particularly creative um, or able to exploit opponents' uh, weaknesses, and you openly and publicly as a head coach and the team owner, Jerry Jones, sort of disavow the modern evolution of the NFL and the reliance on analytics and the use of more advanced thinking to strategize both before and during games. And Garrett and Jones both, you know, earlier this season, after they uh, lost to the Patriots and chose to kick a field goal down a touchdown late in the game, you know, both said, yeah, we don't use those stats within the game, Garrett said, and Jones said something very similar. Different people have different approaches. That was Garrett. I think Jones said, I've had my biggest success when I'm sure analytics have said make the decision the, the other way. It's totally true, and I thought that was one of the most telling things about Jason Garrett. For a guy who, at least during the beginning of his career, everybody called smart all the time, such a smart guy. Well, how is he smart? <laughs> he's not smart in the sense that, you know, he's engaging with modern football and the way the game is coached and played right now. Uh, he is, you know, he's, he's a guy who still was coaching in the very old school way. I think the thing about Jerry Jones is that he always overcorrects, right? Dave Campo it leads you to Bill Parcells. Now, Wade Phillips and Jason Garrett will lead you to Urban Meyer, Lincoln Riley, somebody like that. He always will take too long, take too long, try to win this way, and then he'll go completely a different direction. So I think whoever the next Cowboys coach will be, you'll almost see a totally different kind of guy than Jason Garrett. But Jason Garrett is smart, Brian. He went to Princeton. I know. Come on. Imagine that. So we should note that Dak Prescott was an MVP candidate a month ago, and he came into this game with an injured shoulder, looked really bad. I think we can chalk at least some of that up to the injury. But kind of in the, in the bigger picture sense, this is not a roster that needs to get gutted. It's a roster that maybe is top-heavy, Brian, with a lot of expensive players. But if a coach comes in here who is smart, better than Jason Garrett, believes in analytics. There's like no reason that this team can't compete, especially in a division with the Giants and Washington that's like four guaranteed wins. It, it seems like it should be for a reasonable team. Just in pure content terms, can you imagine if Urban Meyer becomes coach of the Dallas Cowboys? Can you imagine the takes, the attention, the ratings next year for that? I mean... As you say, this is a good team. I think this is a very desirable job in a way it wasn't probably a couple of years ago. Because if you figure you do have a franchise quarterback, 
who did play really well this year, but for the last month. And then you bring in, as you say, some coach who just kind of knows what he's doing and is potentially a big name. It's going to be exciting. So, yeah. And by the way, I think Urban Meyer is going to be the next coach of the Cowboys. Wow. I think it makes a ton of sense. (laughs) I think he's a big name, big enough name for Jerry. I think he's available. And I think whatever yuckiness attaches itself to his career, Jerry has shown over the years he doesn't care about. So I'd sort of be shocked if he's not the guy. Does having someone like Urban Meyer take over sort of work to the Cowboys' benefit at this stage in Jerry Jones's life? I mean, Jerry needs that giant personality for a couple of reasons. One, it feeds his own ego that he's able to bring in somebody like Urban Meyer, the biggest name in coaching. And two, it gives him the ability to pal around and not feel maybe that he has quite as much agency to interfere as he might have earlier in his career. I mean, Jason Garrett, he could sort of walk all over. Urban Meyer brings you back to the Jimmy Johnson sort of glory days of the Cowboys and celebrity coaching. Yeah, and I think it's about them kind of coming to some kind of working arrangement. Like, does, does Urban Meyer going to be upset if Jerry Jones gives an interview after every game? I don't know. Did that happen at Ohio State in any way? Did the, did the AD and the school president come down to the locker room and reflect on the win or the loss? He'd have to come up with that. How much personnel, you know, kind of sway is he going to have when Jerry Jones is still the titular GM of the Dallas Cowboys and always will be, I believe, the GM of the Dallas Cowboys as long as he's alive? So, you know, it's about, again, the working relationship, whether that whether Jerry takes that as a positive, I can lay back a little bit, or whether he sees that as threatening or strange in some way, I don't know. It worked with Jimmy Johnson, obviously. It worked with Parcells for a few years. Can it work with a new coach? I'm going to ask you to ruminate for a second, if you can pre-ruminate while I'm uh, asking this question. It doesn't seem like anything the Cowboys can do or have ever done has managed to make them kind of decline or fall out of the NFL firmament. Like America's team is kind of a joke at this point, but they are still the subject of like national intrigue and interest. And I compare them to like the 49ers who were the showcase franchise under, you know, Joe Montana, Steve Young, Bill Walsh, Jerry Rice. And now even though they're good again, it's like nobody cares about the 49ers in the same way that they care about the Cowboys. Why is that? It's a great question. It's rooted in so much history, I think. The fact that the Cowboys were good in several decades. They're really good in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, and it's only recently, and if you, if you count a couple of those good years during the teens, you might be able to squeeze them into that frame. Here's the thing I would say. I do believe Jerry Jones cares really deeply about the economics of the Dallas Cowboys, but even more than the Cowboys being good, I think he cares about the relevance of the Dallas Cowboys, and you can directly look at a lot of his actions this year, any year, and it's Jerry trying to stir up interest, right? Jerry wants to make sure that the Dallas Cowboys are the single most talked about, most you know worried over, most laughed at thing in the NFL. That is, is absolutely a priority for him. Now, whether that's bringing in a big name coach, whether that's giving crazy interviews after a game, whether that's you know building the biggest stadium in the world, whatever it is, that that's his thing. So it, it's been this attempt to be relevant. I don't get a sense that a franchise like the 49ers, is it, that's even on the radar, or they would even know how to do it. But Jerry is a great showman. And I just think that's the thing. He inherited this amazing amount of love-hate combo that started, you know, really in the 60s and, and kind of flourished in the 70s. And he built on it. And the one thing he will never do as owner is let the Cowboys turn into the Bengals or let the Cowboys turn into the Browns. I don't mean a bad team. He's let them turn into that. I mean a team that nobody cares about. Yeah, could you even name the owner? Could most fans name the owner of the 49ers today? I mean, you could argue that re-signing Jason Witten had far more to do with keeping the Cowboys relevant in the media in the offseason. You could argue that being outspoken when Zeke Elliott was being accused of domestic violence and facing the NFL's wrath was part of keeping the Cowboys relevant. That's what has dictated Jerry Jones's actions for, you know, since he came into the league and sued his fellow owners. It's made the Cowboys wildly successful. It's made them continuously relevant. And it also sometimes makes them look like jackasses. And he's okay (laughs) with that, I think. Trying to get rid of Roger Goodell a few years ago. And of course, that relevance then feeds more relevance. Then you've got Tony Romo and Troy Aikman in number one NFL booths talking about the Cowboys. Troy Aikman has been subtweeting the Cowboys on TV for like six weeks. 
And all that, all that does is just create more and more and more attention. Yeah, I don't think there's any other explanation for Aikman saying at the end of Sunday's game that the Eagles win was the greatest team win that he had ever seen, I think, in sports. <laughs> that wouldn't make sense unless you knew that Troy Aikman was uh, the Cowboys quarterback the last time they won the Super Bowl. <laughs> Yeah, and a guy who in his heart of hearts would probably love to run the Cowboys. You know, it's a John Elway-like figure. So they'll put that in there, too. Brian Curtis writes about sports media, sometimes the Cowboys, for The Ringer. You should also listen to his podcast, The Press Box. And Brian, firejasongarrett.com, domain for sale. I think that guy maybe held on to it a little too long, but last-minute holiday idea, firejasongarrett.com. How about that, firejasongarrett.com? I'll see you guys. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Earlier this month, Georgia's Republican Governor Brian Kemp nominated an Atlanta businesswoman named Kelly Leffler to fill an upcoming vacancy in the United States Senate. National Republicans wanted Congressman Doug Collins, one of the party's most incoherent members during the Judiciary Committee impeachment hearings. But Leffler fought back by demonstrating her conservative bona fides, describing herself as a proud patriot, a devoted wife, a devout Christian, a lifelong Republican, unapologetically pro-Second Amendment, pro-military, pro-wall, and pro-Trump, oh, and strongly pro-life. In seeming opposition to those traits, she's also a co-owner of the Atlanta Dream of the Women's National Basketball Association, whose players have been outspoken on issues including abortion and LGBTQ rights, gun violence, and prison reform. Our friend Lindsay Gibbs is here. Lindsay wrote about Leffler and the WNBA in a recent edition of her newsletter, Power Plays. She's also one of the hosts of the podcast, Burn It All Down. Hey, Lindsay. Hi. Thanks for having me. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for doing the live show. We loved having you. It was a blast. So Leffler and another Atlanta businesswoman bought the dream eight years ago. Leffler had floated a Senate run in 2014, but her politics didn't seem well known or a big issue in the WNBA before this. Why not? Well, I think she was behind the scenes. She wasn't a politician. I don't think everyone's going around digging into the private donations of every single person in the league. And she was relatively quiet about everything publicly. I think she was very behind the scenes. She wasn't in the political life at all until all of a sudden she's a Republican senator. (laughs) And what has the response been from fans of the dream in Atlanta and also just WNBA fans more broadly? I think a lot of people are really upset by this. I've heard from a lot of dream fans who feel like they've been lied to a little bit. There's a sense of betrayal, I think, that not only does she have these views, her job is to work to implement these policies that people feel are, you know, anti-LGBTQ, anti-immigrant, anti-queer, anti-abortion, you know, a lot of different things that people in the league really care about. She is now, not only does she in her personal life hold these beliefs, but she's now going to be part of the government that is enacting these policies. And There's a very, I mean, Atlanta is a very progressive city, (laughs) obviously, and women's sports, it's not uniformly progressive, but it's a progressive fan base. So I think that there's people feel like there's some cognitive dissonance there. Yeah, the dream, the team didn't have any comment about her nomination to fill this empty seat. The league has said almost nothing. I mean, nothing. The league hasn't said anything about this. I mean, I don't know that that's surprising necessarily. I mean, what would the league say? There have been cases of other team owners serving in political positions. Herb Cole, the owner of the Milwaukee Bucks, was a U.S. senator. That's really the only one I could think of, though. Yeah, I was yeah. Think of that too. Well, there's one. <laughs> yeah. This has happened before. There was this one guy. So I'm not sure that the WNBA should comment, but it certainly puts them in a tricky position. I mean, the league itself, it's not just the players that have been socially active. The league itself has been very supportive 
of the players and of causes like these. I think there was a promotion last year where a portion of what was it, ticket sales were donated to various groups, including Planned Parenthood. Yeah. And that when, was in Atlanta, right? Or uh, was that league that wide? Was league that wide. was league wide. And also league wide, when the government was trying to take away funding from Planned Parenthood, one of those many times, uh, I believe in 2018, Lisa Borders, who was president at the time, released a statement in support of Planned Parenthood as the president of the WNBA. So it's not just been coming from the players. So the demographics of WNBA fandom, there aren't any like great stats on this, right? But you would have to imagine it's a more progressive fan base than is typical. And yet, I don't know if one would then expect that the owners of these teams would be any different demographically than the owners of teams in any other league. Or is that actually not true? Do we see rich people who have progressive views kind of flocking to this league because they want to be a part of the league that represents their values? I think you see a little bit of both. I've also seen owners who I think you know, listening to the players, interacting with the players and learning from the players, you know, you want to support your players. And that kind of helps your opinions of on issues evolve over time. And since the league has been, the progressivism has been so out front over the past few years. I know in DC, we see Ted Leonsis really kind of embrace more of an activism voice in the past few years and, and hold events in the community. The owner of the, of the Washington the, Sorry, the yes, Mystics. the owner of the Washington Mystics and the Washington Wizards and the Washington Capitals. And he's definitely not somebody I think people were like, oh, he's a progressive, but he's been very supportive of the players speaking out. And to me, that's what this comes down to. Right. I'm not naive enough at all to believe that everybody involved in the WNBA is a staunch progressive or believes in equality across the board. Because you're right. People who have a lot of money, a lot of rich people in sports don't believe that. And there's no reason that in women's sports that should be fundamentally different. I just do think there is a stark difference when you're actually running for office on these ideals, when you're actually saying the phrase, make America great again, when you are actually working to convince people about how anti-abortion you are and anti, uh, you know, and pro-wall you are. And And like I said, then it's your job to enact policies that really fly in the face of a lot of what WNBA fans and players stand for. I think there is more of a right for people to be upset and frustrated with that than if it was just a personal belief that I, I think there is a fine line once you actually become a politician. Well, and, and Kelly Leffler came out in support of this heartbeat bill on abortion yeah. that Governor Kemp in Georgia has endorsed. She said she would back a bill that Lindsey Graham has sponsored that would ban abortions after 20 weeks. I mean, this is in direct opposition to things that players had been advocating very, very specifically. Um, players have come out against this and other state bills. Elena Deladon, the WNBA's MVP of the Washington Mystics, had been has gone on the record to talk about her support for women's right to choose. Brianna Stewart, another star, wore a T-shirt in May that read abortion is a human right. And this was while getting her championship ring in Seattle for the 2018 season. T-shirt that read abortion is a human right, a constitutional choice, a personal choice, healthcare, life-saving, gender equality, owning your own body, not a crime, not up for debate. The concern that you raised in your Power Plays newsletter, Lindsay, that I think is a real legitimate one, is that will this have a chilling effect on players' willingness to speak out? I mean, if you're a free agent, you're thinking about where to go, or you're a player who gets traded to Atlanta, is that a realistic issue for not just the team, but for the league generally now? I think so. I mean, I was pretty stunned that I couldn't get any any players really to talk about this on the record. That There haven't been any tweets about it. And then I thought more about it. And I was like, of course, they're scared. There's only 12 WNBA teams. It's already one of the hardest leagues to make a roster cut in the world. You know, 144 is just not that many when you think of all the talent we have coming up through the pipeline. And Brianna Stewart and Elena Deladon, they're probably fine and protected no matter what they believe. But what if you're a French player or even not a French player, but, you know, a starter who is trying to make a name for themselves? Are you going to feel comfortable speaking out, knowing there's a chance any day now you could be traded to Atlanta or that when you're in a free agent, you need to 
be on Atlanta. I'm sure the team, although they haven't said this, this is something they could have said, which is that our owners' beliefs aren't going to impact anything that we do on the business side, that there's a separation. Of course, they haven't come out and said anything like this, although I'm sure they would say that. But we all know that those lines, they're not always so fine. Well, and and Josh, don't you think like you also look at the agency of the players, too? I mean, this could be a detriment not for players who are worried about what they'll be able to say if they were to sign in Atlanta or if they, you know, just want to speak out generally. But for that team, for that franchise, if I'm a socially progressive player, I'm not sure I want to go play for this owner necessarily. Yeah, I think in the NFL, so you had Steve Ross in Miami, and then they had players in Miami that were speaking out that were part of the social justice movement in that league. And that led to some conflicts. And Ross saying that he supported the players, but also, you know, holding a Trump fundraiser. Um, And Kenny Stills gets traded from Miami. I mean, they're dumping all sorts of players. So there's not necessarily a direct line there, but you have to wonder. And then, you know, the thing that I I've been thinking about in terms of comparing this to the NFL because like NFL owners are kind of Trump's leading demographic, right. like they're bundlers for for him. They supported his inauguration um, and the players in the league, just, you know, generally do not support Donald Trump. But maybe it's not become as big an issue or it doesn't seem like surprising or existential just because we don't see the NFL or we hadn't seen it until recent years as a social cause. We've seen it as a business. Whereas the WNBA at this point in its history, it is so tightly connected with not just what the players believe in terms of politics and activism, but also just the league itself. It's seen as a part of a social good just because we believe that having women's sports in this country is a great thing and it hasn't always been a thing. And so I wonder if that's what's going on here. That's a a factor is that because we see that WNBA more broadly as a social cause, this seems more kind of upsetting. Well, and and I think let me jump in and before you answer, Lindsay, but we also see the NBA as kind of more broadly a social cause. I mean, not in the same way, obviously, because there is the overlay of women's sports and women's empowerment here. But both have generated that sort of image publicly, whereas with the NFL, I mean, look, the single most outspoken person on social justice causes has been blackballed from the league, probably. But I I think that if if an NFL owner or an NBA owner became a senator, that that would be a huge topic of conversation, too. Like, I mean, think about it if if an NBA owner became was, you know, appointed because that's what she's been is literally just appointed as a Republican senator. So there's no even campaign. I think that that would be raising some flags. I think you would have players speaking out. I think there would be some hand wringing. So I do agree that, you know, part of me doesn't want women's sports to always be tied up in social causes, right? Like it's a business, it's entertainment, and that's a big focus too. But also as with all things with women's sports, you can't completely separate. One concern I have is Kelly Leffler was not the person that a lot of people on the right wanted to be the next senator from Georgia. Oh my God, she had donated to Mitt Romney. Right, she had donated to Mitt Romney and they were using the WNBA's connections to Planned Parenthood against her. So now now she's had to come back and really stress how pro-life she is and separate yeah. herself from the WBA, right. which makes me wonder if there is going to be a lot of disingenuous people using anything Atlanta players say about social issues, using anything that Dream players say as a way to dig against Kelly Leffler and to, you know, further prove how non-conservative she is and if that's not going to create a bigger barrier of silence because I think she's going to be more concerned about what her players are saying and the positions they are taking now that she's more under the that, spotlight. That's really a, a good point. I mean, yeah. she's, if she's perceived as a sort of a, a faux Republican. Yeah whose team employed, you know, or used to Stacey Abrams, the Democratic gubernatorial candidate in Georgia for some legal work for the Atlanta dream. Oh, my God. I mean, she's going to end up 
stuck in a very bad place. Yeah, I mean, Sean Hannity's already going nuts over it. And right. she's got a, you know, so she's appointed, but there's a special election in 2020. So is she going to get challenged from the right for that, you know, special election? And so now it's all about her proving that she is that conservative. Right. Well, and then does the WNBA at that point sort of have to say something? Yeah. If they're being smeared by the right. Yeah, it'd be really know. interesting to see what kind of pose Leffler takes Vis-a-vis and, the and what the yeah, and what the WNBA does. I mean, it, what it makes me think of also to some degree is that you know we have to separate out the fact that you know there are right wing women who support you know equality. Oh, absolutely for women in all sorts of spheres, and you have people like you know Kellyanne Conway saying, "Why wasn't I celebrated as the first woman to lead a winning presidential campaign?" So the fact that that there's like a woman who's right wing or even like super right wing who wants to support this league and wants to support women's sports, you know, that maybe isn't that that surprising. And the, the where we get the disconnect is then when we expect that a woman who would support equality in one realm would support mm-hmm. women's rights, you know, from a left wing progressive perspective. Yeah, because her acquisition of this team back in 2011 with another Atlanta businesswoman named Mary Brock was hailed as mm-hmm. a really good moment for the league. There are only two teams out of the 12 in the WNBA that are majority owned by women, Mm -hmm. Atlanta and uh, Seattle, Seattle, the Seattle Storm. Um, Her co-owner, Mary Brock, is on the board of the historically black college and university Spelman College in in Atlanta. She's uh, perceived as a a more liberal voice in contrast to her wife, though she's married to the retired chairman of Coke. You know, these are rich Atlanta philanthropic business people. These are not like social icons, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Kelly Leffler herself has been, uh, she's what, the, is, uh, runs a Bitcoin company. <laughs> she married the chairman of the, of the financial services company that she was working for. These are rich people and rich conservative people. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, it just so much of it is just this can be, but the white feminism thing, right? Like that's what it is. It's like we want women's rights, but only within this certain box. And like I said, I mean, you have players in the W who are more conservative. You have coaches who are more conservative. It is not a monolith by any stretch of the imagination. I just do think that this is going to change the way a lot of players feel about speaking out. And I think that is very unfortunate. And that's where it becomes bothersome. Lindsay Gibbs writes the newsletter Power Plays. You should subscribe to it. She's also one of the hosts of Burn It All Down, a podcast about women and sports. Lindsay, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing... The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. All right. I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to answer a couple of your questions in a special call-in segment. One of the topics covered is the ideal deployment of sports curses. Is it better to curse a coach, a player, or a team? If you want to hear us puzzle that out and you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up for just $35 for the first year. You can do that at slate.com slash hangup plus. A few weeks ago on this program, I talked about Ole Miss wide receiver Elijah Moore catching a touchdown pass against Mississippi State, then pretending to be a dog then pretending to pee in the manner of a dog, which led to him getting a 15-yard penalty, which led indirectly to Ole Miss losing the game, which led kind of directly to Ole Miss's coach getting fired, and now Lane Kiffin is the head coach at Ole Miss, all thanks to the four-legged manner in which Elijah Moore comported himself in the end zone. While I was doing research for that afterball, I remembered an earlier act of canine mimicry in a 1994 high school basketball game, a play that's been a staple on sports blooper reels ever since. Let's take a listen. Watch the barking dog play. Down by one point with two seconds left. This player gets down on all fours and barks like a dog in an attempt to distract the other team. It works and his team wins. It's just a shame that we can't use that play again. (laughs) 
The voice you heard at the end belonged to Jason Holt. He was the guy who got down on all fours, distracting the other team so his teammate could make the game-winning layup. Now, 25 years later, we have got the legendary Jason Holt on the phone with us from Wyoming. Jason, welcome. Thank you for coming on the show. Well, thanks a lot for having me, guys. I appreciate it. All right, Jason, let's set the scene for everyone. It's January 1994. This is a junior varsity basketball game in Casper, Wyoming, between Natrona and Kelly Walsh High Schools. You're playing for Natrona. The game is tied at 63. Your teammate, Dave Schachterly, is getting ready to inbound the ball under your opponent's basket. Tell us what happens next. Well, as you know, we had already worked on this play over Christmas as a way of kind of challenging our varsity squad. They played a lot of zone. We had like a 6'9 kid, and so they were really kind of hard to fool on inbounds plays, so we were trying to throw them a curveball. It probably wasn't something that we were looking to utilize in a game necessarily. You know, I tell everyone, I feel like if we had been trailing, I doubt we would have went to those extremes, but Kelly was in a zone. So we kind of felt like it was, you know, something that might be able to come up with a bucket. So I ran into the corner as predetermined, got down, started barking. Thinking back on it now, I looked into the lane, which was kind of probably ill-advised in a sense that, you know, might have tipped our hand. But Mike Hobart on the back end, that you see in the video, um, shoved a defender out of the way. The refs are looking at me. Two hands shoved this kid out of the way. And then, you know, nice, easy layup. And the rest is history. I didn't realize, Stefan, did you realize that that was a crucial part of the barking dog play, that the distraction allowed for offensive fouling? I, I was looking at Jason barking like a dog. <laughs> Who's paying attention to what's going on under the basket? It was perfect. Now, take us a little bit, <laughs> set it up a little bit more for us. It looked like there were some fans there. It was caught on video by the student manager. Had you tipped anybody off that you might be doing this? No, so that would be a little bit more of the backstory is, is, you know, there had been a timeout called and we're over on the bench. And I remember our coach, Tim Nolan, saying to us, well, what do you guys want to run? We've kind of exhausted our options up to this point. And another assistant coach kind of pops in out of nowhere and he goes barking dog play. And Nolan kind of looks around at everybody, and before he can say no, we just ran out there and got into it. So, I mean, that was that's a part of the, you know a little bit more of the backstory. I mean, I did we didn't even usually record our JV games. You know, there's 15 people there. It was on a Monday night. We were out of school, I believe, for a quality day. It was on my birthday, <laughs> and typically, like I said, we didn't even record the games coach wasn't even like he didn't call for it in the sense that you know somebody suggested it and then we ran out there before he could shut it down i mean history is just you know the product of serendipity sometimes that worked out nicely that's for sure (laughs) tell us a little bit more about the coach tim nolan there are some quotes from him in newspapers that i found where he talked about it's important because these are kids you got to go out and have some fun this isn't the super bowl he also talked about that he had the mind of a thief the typical coach's mind. What can you tell us about this guy? Well, he was, you know, I I still know him to this day. Um, A great dude, um, you know, 30 plus years in coaching him and his wife. I mean, they're still involved in the community, but a little bit of the backstory as far as him coming across this particular play, he was at a coach's clinic for football. And, you know, the day's kind of dragging on. This is how he explains it to me is that, He's talking with another coach about inbounds plays in basketball at a football clinic up in the press box, you know, just kind of killing time. And the dude that he was going over this potential play with ended up being the head varsity coach at Kelly Walsh that year. He was at NC. His name's Mike Reagan. He moved over to Kelly to take the head spot. So he kind of ended up using it against him, you know, and everybody obviously in a community but like Casper is interconnected, but that was part and, and Tim was a great guy, a terrific coach, and it was really about just having fun in the moment there. Obviously a JV game doesn't really mean anything for varsity squad making state or there weren't gonna be any type of peripheral consequences for doing something like that, which I think is why he didn't shut it down in the moment there and just kind of let it go. So wait, what you're saying though is that there was a small chance that the opposing coach in his own huddle might have been saying, watch out for the barking dog play. 
Well, I mean, <laughs> you know what? At that time, to be honest with you guys, I mean, nobody had ever really seen anything like that in a basketball game. It's one thing to talk about it. You don't but say. It's another thing to kind of roll out there and go for it. And I think that's why it kind of took off the way it did, even back then before, you know, the advent of, you know, social media and the internet and all that, um, you know, it, it really kind of exploded in the biggest way possible, you know, on network television, just because no one had ever really seen anything like well, that. Well, it was goofy. And, and before we get to some of the details on how it exploded and what happened to you in the aftermath, I want to ask you, how did you, why you, why were you perfectly suited to be the barking dog? Were there auditions? Did the other players, did you guys all do like barking dog drills to see who was the best at it? How did you wind up being the man of destiny? Well, you know, Nolan said it best. He goes, whether it was I was the only guy that would do it or, you know, I was kind of the designated team clown. You know, we're talking early 90s. You know, people are still pretty conservative at this point, you know, in a, in a sense, socially. So I was just kind of, you know, I was willing to do it. I just made a great dog. You know, I had the best bark. Was it more of like a yappy bark or like a deep growl? Or did you try different no. ones? Looking back and the more and more I replay it in my head, I wish I would have maybe gone with a little more of an authoritative bark. It was pretty yappy, kind of like more of a, a small dog class in a sense. I'm not extremely happy about it looking back. You couldn't do it again, as you said at the end of the blooper reel. You only had one shot. Well, yeah, I mean, if it certainly wasn't going to work again, that's not the barking dog. People came up with variations that I'm sure you guys have seen in exploration, but that one rendition of the play was not going to work at least anytime soon back in the mid 90s. Um, I do like the fact that in, in coming up with variations, though, the one that I really liked was the one where you bark and then stand up and get the ball and shoot a three. But that puts a lot of pressure on the dog, which I'm sure you felt. Yeah, that, now you're looking at multiple responsibilities there. First, you got to sell the, the first. You got to sell the bark. Then you got to get up and hit a three. But yeah, that's one of those that would probably work in those circumstances. All right, let's talk about your rise to fame. You were a CNN Play of the Day. You were on ESPN, nominated for an SB, and you were on the Tonight Show. Kind of take us back to those dizzying days in the winter of 1994 what was that like i mean it was it's kind of hard to describe honestly and i haven't really spent a lot of time thinking about just kind of how that all ended up rolling once the play happened after the game i'm not even sure that we realized that again we didn't typically record games for jv so i was surprised that we even had video footage so a gentleman at the time that was working with kind of the you know the high school tv class or whatever got his hands on it and sent it to a local affiliate once it hit there it kind of it took off but i mean we were doing radio interviews over the phone and i was doing the, you know like celebrity weather here in town <laughs> To be nominated for an SB, I'd, honestly, I'd forgotten about that. And I remember the play that won, I can't even remember the category, it was like the most outrageous play of the year, but yeah. the play that won was a high school football game in Texas where one team had come back from down 100 points. The game's tied and they're kicking off and it's going to go into overtime, but the team that receives the kickoff, 10 laterals later scores a touchdown and they end up winning. The, I mean, it was just incredible, that play you know, that sequence for those kids in Texas. So, yeah, but then we did a ton of interviews, and then we got a call from The Tonight Show. I think we had gotten a call from them and from Letterman, and then it was one or the other. It was never going to be both. Yeah, it sounds like Letterman was, Letterman was on vacation, so you ended up with Jay Leno and James Garner and Tony Bennett. Oh, man, yeah. That was, it was just surreal. I, I mean, just like I said, thinking about it now, is just, it's kind of like an out-of-body experience being a, you know, a 17-year-old kid and, and getting flown out to California and, and just in a town of our size. I mean, at that time, you know, probably not even 50,000 people living in Casper, Wyoming, and, you, and you're going on a Tonight Show. So, yeah, it was a little nuts. It's pretty surreal. I have to say, though, you were nominated for an ESPY, but in Wyoming, the Casper Star Tribune pick the 15 top Wyoming sports stories of 1994. And the Barking Dog play only came in at number six, which is just shocking. You know, 
I, I don't even remember that either. And, <laughs> and, and it's, it's not surprising in a sense that, I mean, there wasn't, not everybody was exactly on board with the fanfare that surrounded that, obviously. So that may have been a nod at like, well, this isn't, you know, yeah, it's a sports story, but it's not, we kind of feel like this may have been outside of what we would consider regular sports action, I guess is a way of phrasing it. The number one sports story in Wyoming that year, Jason, was the folding of the Casper Classic bike race. Oh, damn. Yeah, you were much better. <laughs> well, that, I mean, that is a little surprising. I mean, let, let's talk about <laughs> like, we're, we're not talking about the folding of the Casper Classic bike race here in 2019. We're talking about the barking dog play. Um, Josh, do you want to read the poem that was written that appeared yeah, in the would... Kelly Walsh uh, High School, the newspaper, The Kelly Call? Yeah, I would love to. So as part of that top 15 Wyoming sports stories write-up, they included an excerpt from a poem written by Carrie Lothrop from the rival school, Kelly Walsh, and the poem read in part, Lo and behold, Jason Holt to the rescue, acting like a dog micturating in the fescue. A basket was scored and the Trojans lost. The Mustangs won, but at what cost? She does raise a good point that or maybe not a good point but a point that ends up becoming a talking point the mustangs won but at what cost and you may or may not know this but the barking dog play has wound up being you know cited in academic articles about sportsmanship and fair play and i'm wondering like at the time did you guys even think about like is this fair that we're doing this? Right. And does it display bad sportsmanship? No. You know, I, I don't think we really had given it much thought, which now thinking about it, I think the question should have been raised. You know, I take it all kind of in stride. I did. I tried to then and, and would certainly do so now that I think it's an absolutely a, a, a fair conversation that at what cost? I mean, I would have said then, you know, it would have been at the cost of, them losing a basketball game. There are only two high schools here in town. It is kind of a, you know, at all cost mentality type thing. I think it's an absolutely fair question. Were there bad feelings on the Kelly Walsh side? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't see how if you have ever tried to walk a mile in somebody else's shoes, how you could really be with that if you were on the receiving end of going down in a rivalry game that way. You know, I mentioned those academic studies, and they are pretty hilarious. Josh found these uh, Googling. All right, why don't you read the one from Modern Sports Ethics, a reference handbook. I'm going to jump to the part where it mentions Kantian ethics. According to Kantian ethics... It is wrong to treat a person as a mere means. Parents who take pride in their child barking like a dog in a game contribute to this debasement. Finally, the barking dog play exemplifies a winning-at-all-cost attitude. Teams that resort to the barking dog and similar plays are primarily driven to win in whatever way they can within the rules. These tactics ignore the fact that fair play in sport must require respectful, non-exploitive, sports-specific skilled behavior between opponents. Anything less, like the barking dog play, cheapens the value of human beings and sport. Jason, man, that's putting a lot of weight on your shoulders there. Oh, man. I just, I would have to really take a lot of time to break that down. (laughs) Um, That's pretty deep. I mean, I guess I wouldn't say it's an absolute quantum leap to go from kids just kind of acting organically just within the moment there to, I mean, sports should be in a certain respect. They are by any means necessary. Nobody's overall well-being, as far as any of those kids that Kelly Walsh was compromised long-term. And and I was, I'm more concerned with your, your well-being because, you know, this, this analysis said that it diminishes the integrity of the person who is barking like a dog. You're okay though, right? Unless they're a willing participant, right? I mean, so I don't, I don't get a say in whether or not I wanted to be a part of it, I guess, then, right? It's another Kantian riddle, Jason. Really, it's another philosophical riddle. Yeah. All right, Jason, I mentioned Ole Miss and Elijah Moore uh, at the top of the segment. Micturating. There was some, there was some mimed uh, micturation there. <laughs> what would you kind of say to... Elijah, given that you are kind of the grand old man of 
dog mimicry in sports? Uh, off the top of my head, bad dog. I, I mean, that's <laughs> the only thing I could come up with for Elijah. I mean, because, again, that wasn't a coordinated team effort. We didn't really necessarily have the full endorsement of our coach as we ran out there before he could tell us no to go with the barking dog play, even though it was something that he had kind of helped us set up. But Elijah was acting on his own, and that impacted his team's outcome in that contest for sure. You do feel bad for a kid because at the end of the day, even though these guys are on TV every week and they play in stadiums in front of 100,000 people, I mean, he's a 18, 19-year-old kid. Certainly, I think we can all attest that we're not making our best decisions in that time frame, and he's caught up in the moment. And so I'm sure if he had to do it all over again, he would. And you know from being in the Natrona County-Kelly Walsh rivalry that a big uh, rivalry game like Ole Miss-Mississippi State, that can affect your thinking as well? Sure. You talk about by any means necessary. He had done everything he needed to do from a competitive standpoint to gain an advantage or at least to pull even. And then he ruined his outcome in the end by a snap judgment. So I completely appreciate the rivalry standpoint and the blood, sweat, and tears. And it's a football game. And you're allowed to bang guys over the head. I, I mean, I understand that, but at that age, you're going to make some really bad decisions in the moment. All right, Jason. So you still work in athletics and you're also a referee. You're a referee now. That's right. You know, I tell myself now because, I mean, as everybody knows, um, culture in, in American sports and maybe in relation to what happened on that night in January 1994 that, you know, just kind of the denigration of our, you know, social outlook to athletics and what people are willing to do. I have gotten into officiating basketball. It's not the world's most glamorous job. Parents have gotten to be hypercritical. We're having a hard time in this country retaining officials. People don't want to do it. Um, they're not going to show up for, you know, 30 bucks to get screamed at for an hour and a half by parents who aren't really on top of the rules or whatever the case may be, but I keep telling myself, I keep going back. Obviously, it's to help facilitate an activity for kids. I feel like that's important, but it's just kind of my just desserts also. When I was a player, I wasn't the greatest with officials. Obviously, there's the barking dog play. You know, again, that wasn't really, we weren't thinking about trying to pull one over the officials' eyes, although, I mean, that did happen in a sense, too. There was a pretty good offensive shove in there in order to, you know, on top of the barking to get that accomplished, but I kind of tell myself this is my paying it forward for all my times of being a high school kid and, and people showing up and making it happen for me. Let me ask you this, Jason. Do people still know you as the barking dog guy? Until oh, the day I die in this town, probably, Stefan, I would think. I mean, I, I try not to bring it up a lot. It is kind of cool for people to mention it. You know, I, I won't lie. It will come up and somebody will say, now, you realize that was him, right? And they'll be like, oh, my God, I didn't know that was you. So that's nice in a sense. Most people from either side of town in Casper now that can kind of look back on it and be like, oh, yeah, I remember that. And there's not a lot of bad blood there anymore. So, yeah, I, I think I'll probably be known for that in this town forever. All right, Jason, it was an honor to be able to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the Barking Dog play with you here. Maybe there's going to be a reenactment in Casper kind of on the same spot. We can get some of the old gang back together and do it over again. If so, maybe have the student manager film it and we can have it on CNN. Or you know what I would suggest to the athletic director at Natrona, Jason, is to do that get some throwback uniforms, but rename the team the Barking Dogs for one game. You know, and I'm welcome for anything that they're willing to put together. You know, I was a little disappointed. They just refurbished the gym over there, and they didn't name it after me. I don't know, <laughs> I mean, how I got overlooked. Jason Holt of Casper, Wyoming. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this. Appreciate it. Thank you. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student-athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now it is time for an afterball on the Natrona County High School Wikipedia page. 
Jason Holt is not listed as a notable alum, which is a crime, but Dick Cheney is, which is another crime. So is hammer throw silver medalist Lance Deal, also listed as a notable alum, Major League Baseball player Mike Lansing. But I'm going to choose to honor Floyd Volker, who played in the NBA, the NBL, and the NPBL for the Oshkosh All-Stars, Indianapolis Olympians, and the Denver Nuggets. The blog Uncle Mike's Musings has him number nine on a list of Wyoming's greatest athletes. So we've got the number six sports moment in Wyoming in 1994 and the ninth greatest Wyoming athlete. My Floyd Volker this week is not about Wyoming. Last week, Washington, D.C. hosted a major international sporting event, one I was not aware of until the morning of the final day of said sporting event. It was the Men's World Team Squash Championship. And it was held at a club called Squash on Fire. Squash on Fire. I was thankfully able to get in to see some hot squash action, which was quite fun. Among the things I learned based on watching and talking to folks at the Men's World Team Squash Championship, top squash people look down on racquetball, which requires less strategy and wherein you're allowed to hit the ball off the ceiling like a brute. In squash, they play with both white balls and black balls, depending on the type of court, with the white balls reserved for glass courts only. None of the players were wearing eye protection, which seemed dangerous, but I did not see anyone lose an eye. Also, there's a lot of interference in squash, which I guess isn't a surprise given that they're running around in a small box, but the players bump into each other pretty constantly, which requires the referee to determine if the interference warrants the interferer losing the point or if they should just replay the point. This leads to a lot of whining from players about interference and interference-related issues. Naturally, there is also a replay review system, though in D.C. it was thankfully only available on a single court. The main thing I learned, though, watching squash, is that squash is presently dominated by a surprising country, surprising to me at least, and that is Egypt. On Saturday here in D.C., Egypt beat England to win the world team title. Not a surprise, given that Egypt brought the world number one player, Ali Farag, as well as the number three, number four, and number eight players. Oh, and the number two player in the world, not from some other country, also Egyptian, just was not in D.C. It's not just the men. The top four women in the world rankings are Egyptian, too. And here's another fun fact. The number one man in the world, Ali Farag, is married to the number four woman, Noor El Tayeb. The number one woman, Ranim El Wedjali, is married to the number four man, Tarek Mumin. An Atlantic piece from 2014 explained that Egypt has been into squash since the 19th century due to colonialism. The English brought the game to Egypt. Local ball boys and workers at these clubs had access to courts after hours when their colonialist bosses were gone. Egyptian players had some success on the international level in the first half of the 20th century, but not from the 1950s to the 1990s when the country was pretty consistently in turmoil. In the 1990s, though, Egypt's squash-playing autocratic leader, Hosni Mubarak, promoted the game heavily, including having a glass court built in front of the pyramids. A player named Ahmad Barada came out of nowhere to make the finals of that tournament, the one contested in front of the pyramids. Uh, He was just 19 at the time. He became a national hero and a role model for a new generation of players. That Atlantic story of five years ago suggested that Egypt's dominance might soon be on the wane. As we know now, that did not happen. Just last month, the New York Times' David Siegel went to Cairo to report on the Egyptian squash phenomenon. He wrote that the popularity of the sport was helped along by American colleges recruiting Egypt's best young players. He also says it helps that the pros are clustered in two cities, which makes it easy for young players to watch and learn from the greats. The most interesting thing I learned from Siegel's story is not about why Egypt became so dominant. It's about the fact that Egyptians changed how squash is played, that they changed the strategy from one based around attrition, wearing down the opposition, to a more, quote, dynamic and unstructured game with out-of-nowhere drop shots and deceptive flicks of the wrist. Siegel writes, time and again, players and coaches described their attitude toward the game as undisciplined, by which they mean it as improvised and unscientific. So Egypt, not just dominating the game, they're changing the game, which is very cool. Uh, Squash, it's enjoyable. And if you find yourself watching a match, bet on the Egyptian. That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. 
If you're still here, you might perhaps want even more Hang Up and Listen. In our bonus segment this week, Stefan and I debated how best to deploy a sports curse. Do you use it on a player, a coach, maybe a team? I can't imagine the circumstances where I would want to put a curse on a player, except while I was just saying that, you mentioned Kobe Bryant, and now I can imagine it. It's the sanctimony of coaches that I think makes them the best target, Mm -hmm. like to see them kind of suffer as they're exploiting a system or exploiting their players and get their comeuppance. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.